Well, I'm, I'm John Elkins. For those of you that don't know me, I, I grew up here in, in Maryland, went to high school, um, went to this church, played basketball in that gym, uh, ruined a lot of things, um, broke a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I, uh, I told Jim this morning that I'm going to have to call some of my friends and tell them that I finally got to play his ovation guitar, um, which is a great, <laughs> great treat for us. Um, it's a delight to be with you. I'm going to mess with this. There you go. Um, it's a great delight to be with you. Uh, all of this to say it is a joy to be home and to visit with you all and to see you. And it's, a, it's just a tremendous blessing to me to know that you are still here. Um, it is a delight. So let's, without any more of my introduction, let's talk about the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Let's read. Uh, And if you want to follow along, we're going to read all the way through to verse 38. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put Within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit tree and the increase of the field abundant. That you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself. For your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on on that day, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. We're going to stop that right now. And the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled. Instead of being a desolation, that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, 
this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then all the nations that are left around you will know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. This is by far one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And I hope to communicate to you why. Why it's one of my favorites. So just imagine here for a moment this setting. Ezekiel is in a place where the people have gotten to become evil. They're just wicked. Both in the north and in his own uh, cities, they are wicked. They're so wicked that um, people are trampling the, the poor, oppressing the weak. They are uh, forgetting the lame. They are laying out the widows and, and, and abusing and, and making extra taxes on people. There's, there's an insane amount of government regulation going on. There is a power from the east that is rising and is threatening their nation. There are all these things going on. And And Ezekiel is a crazy prophet. I mean, literally, if you've ever read through Ezekiel, he sounds nuts. He does things like, he. one of my favorite lines in the book, it's repeated a couple times, is after he sees this vision of the heavenly angels, and he, he says, their rims were tall and awesome. What? It, he just has these weird things going on. At one point, he attacks a rock with a sword. He walks around naked for a while, all to prove points. This guy is a wild prophet. And at the beginning of the book, he outlines the wickedness of Israel. And then in chapter 9, he says he's going to, God says he's going to send his angel to mark his people and separate his people. And then he's going to wipe everybody else out. And he's going he's gonna to bring judgment on the people of God. And so the whole book, you're waiting for that to happen. You're waiting for the, the judgment to come upon the people of God, God's chosen people. These are the people, I mean, let's put this in context. They're the people in church. Like, these are the righteous ones, the chosen nation of God. And God says, I'm going to send my angel to separate, basically, the wheat from the chaff. And it goes through the whole book and you're waiting for it. And then we get to this passage. We get to this passage and there's tension building the whole book. There's anger and frustration with God. He he scorns the shepherds of Israel. In chapter 34, he says, fine, if you won't do it, I'm coming and I'll do it. And you can feel the anger of God rising. And so we, we come to this passage here. And he says, therefore, 
say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, El Elyon, God Almighty, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. That is a terrifying line. God looks at his own people and says, I'm about to do something, and you are guilty. You have profaned my name. And he says, you have profaned my name. And he says, so I'm going to act, but, but understand, Israel, I'm not acting because of you. I'm not acting because you've earned something, because you've done something, because you are good. I'm not acting because you're the ones who are righteous. I'm acting because I am God and it is my name. He says it again there at the end of that section in verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded. For your ways, O house of Israel. And then at the very end in verse 38, he says, Then they will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So God starts with this, I am going to act for my name. Now, just let's do a little philosophy here so that we can understand some of why this is a good thing. Why is it a good thing that God would act for his name? So we're going to do a little bit of philosophy just discussing here or thinking about this, uh, number one, God is the greatest good. Let's, let's start there. God is greatest. He is God. He is supreme. Above him, there is no other. We see this all throughout Scripture. God says, in fact, if you want a fun, uh, a fun homework assignment, go and research all the places it says, for my name in Scripture. I tried this once, and there's so many that I wrote down over a hundred places where God points out for his name or something of that like, and there are over a hundred, and I stopped before I wrote them all down. But if you just go in and do a simple search for my name, you'll find in Scripture, all over Scripture is this statement, for my name, for my name, for my name. Why would I save you? For my name. Why would I rescue Israel? For my name. Why would, I, why would I destroy the enemies of the righteous? For my name. Why would I move this way? For my name. It's for my name, for my name, for my name. And, and for us, when we first hear that as humans, as people, we tend to think immediately, oh, this is arrogance and pride. That's not the case. It's not the case with God because God is the supreme. By definition, he is the highest good. God. He is highest by his definition. Perfect, holy, pure, good. He is the highest good. In fact, in 1 John 11, it, I mean, sorry, 3 John verse 11, it says that he is that which good emanates from or that which good comes from explains that all good comes from God. So God is good. James says all the good things in life come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or change. God is the one from whom all good things emanate. So he is the highest good. So for us, it sounds a little weird to say 
that he, we do things for our namesake, for my namesake. If, if I went and did something for John Elkin's namesake, then there'd be a bit of pride in there, there'd be a bit of arrogance. I, I do this for my name, to make my name great. That's a problem, right? Why? Because I'm not the greatest good, but God is the greatest good. Therefore, when God says I do something for my namesake, then it's a good thing. Because who else is God going to exalt? Who else is God going to exalt? I don't want him to exalt me. No, I want to be rescued. I want to be saved. I want to be redeemed. I want to be protected. I want to be held in his hands. I don't want to be exalted to be God. That's not my place. It's not who I am. I can't handle that. But he is the highest good. Therefore, it is a good thing when God says, for my namesake. That means that whatever he's about to do, whatever he's about to do is the highest good. Because all that is good emanates from him. Whatever he's about to do is the highest good. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, it's the highest good. It's the best thing. Second, things find their goodness when God sees and says that it is good. So not only does all good come from God, but good is literally established by God. Think about Genesis chapter 1, right? What happens? God creates a tree. He sees it's good. He says it's good, and it's, and you say back, good. He, 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 makes, a, he makes, a, makes the earth. He makes the mountains. He separates the water from the sea. He sees it's good. He says it's good, and it is he makes a man. He sees it's good. He says not good that man should be alone. And then he makes a woman and he says, very good. Right. Right. Together, we're very good. Apart, we're a mess. Right? That's how I feel with my wife. So apart, I'm a mess. With my wife, very good. Right? So the the idea here is God is the one who is establishing good. Realize that the Old Testament is a lot of poetry, and this is a poetic nuance that is to teach us something about the declarative nature of God. God sees something as good with his eyes. He says it's good with his mouth, and it is good. That's a poetic nuance in which God is saying, I declare that which is good. It is good because I see it, I say it, and it is. So if God doesn't see it and doesn't say it, it's not good. If he does not declare it that way, then it's not good. All through the Old Testament, they build on this theme. of They see it in their eyes and they say it with their mouth and they declare it one way or the other. What, what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 3 is Eve takes the fruit. She sees it's good for food for the mouth and she eats it declaring it is good declaring what God has said is not good as good. All through the Old Testament this happens. You see, Samson does it. Samson sees with his eyes that something is beautiful. He sees that it, we translate it, Samson saw that the Philistine woman was beautiful. It literally says Samson saw she was good and said she was good and went to take her, and it was not good. The Hebrew is very clear. It's poetic, but it's very clear. There are multiple times when, in the Bible, when David sees what is good, says, I want that, give that to me, and then it's not good. 
when man tries to declare what is good without consult of God, it always goes wrong. When man tries to declare something as good that God has declared as, as evil, it always goes bad. It always goes wrong. So the second thing to realize is not only does all goodness emanate from God, not only do all the good gifts from heaven come down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation, not only does all good come from God himself, he is also the one who declares and makes things good. So he has the power to make good things that are not. So those two things, the second big point, so God is the greatest good, he's the highest good. Second, that's why we should be happy that he says it for his name. Second, God is love. You know this from 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. That's the verse. God is love. Love is from God. Love comes out of God. God is love. Not that God is defined by love. I want to be clear. It's not that God is defined by love, but it is that God defines love. God is the definition of love. So all goodness comes from God. If God is the definition of love, then all love comes from God. And therefore, it is good that God would do this for his name. Second, you know, or third, you know in the Bible, every place where it says Lord in capital letters in English is the name Yahweh, right? That's, or Jehovah, depending on which school of Hebrew translation. By the way, Hebrews don't know. We don't know. We don't know how that was said. They're breath marks. It's a Y, an H, a Y, and an H. Like, we don't, a Y, an H, a V, an H. We don't know what that sounds like, except that it means that you're breathing. <laughs> like it's, that's it. It's called the tetragrammaton. It's, it's when Moses comes before God and there's a fire, a bush on fire, and he comes before God and God says, take off your shoes. The place where you're standing is holy ground because I'm here in person. And Moses takes off his shoes and he walks over to, to the bush and he's terrified, rightly so. There's a bush burning and it's not being consumed and God is speaking. It's a good time to be terrified. And so God uh, speaks out of the bush and Moses says, who should I say sent me? He's giving all these excuses. I can't talk. I don't like this. I can't do anything. And God says, you're right, but I can and I will and I'm going to. And then he says, who should I say sent me? And, Mo and God says, I am. He doesn't give him a name. He says, I defy naming. This is an incredible God. I defy names. I simply am. And did you know in Hebrew, it's actually improper grammar? Yahweh is actually improper grammar. It's from the Hebrew verb to be, uh, hayah, right? That's the Hebrew verb, you know, like hayah. And, and that's how I remember it. So you've got hayah, and the derivative of that would actually be something like hayi. But God says Yahweh, which means I be. I, I simply continue. I exist. Oh, the power of self-sufficiency. This God has the power of self-sufficiency. He, he has the power of life within himself. So he's the highest good. He's the greatest love. And he's where all life emanates. He is the 
the self-sufficient one. You know, when you get to heaven and you look at God and go, who created you? He's going to go, huh? I don't, I don't need to be created. I am self-sufficient. I defy category. It's how great this God is. It's how great he is. That's how huge he is. He's massive and he defies all categories. This is why it is good when God says, I do this for my name. This is why it is good when I do things for my name. When God says that, it is good. So go to verse 22 again. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Now, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Who profaned it? The, they did. The people of God. The people, he's not pointing at the Syrians. He's not pointing at people far away. He's not pointing at everybody else. He's pointing at us, the people of God. You profaned my name among the nations. These are his children. You profaned my name. I will vindicate my holy name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned. He repeats it. Which you have been profaned among the nations, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares El Elyon, God, the Lord God. When, you, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is a scary line. This is a terrifying line. The God of heaven and earth, the king of all glory, the perfect holy one, grabs his children. And this, isn't, this is the end of the rebuke. This is the end. Of the rebuke started in chapter 32. This is the end of it. And he grabs his children and goes, I will set this right. I am going to defend my name and I'm going to use you to do it. Okay, so it's a good thing I'm not God. It's a good thing you're not God. Because if I was God and people made me upset like this and profaned my name and made my name a byword among the nations, if people did that to me, oh, they're done. They're done. But no, God is a good father. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're angry with your children or you're upset with your children. They've done something really, really wrong. And they don't seem to know it. Because that's what happens here. They, Israel does this horrible stuff and, and they don't seem to get it. So I don't know if you've ever been there. But you, you rebuke your child. And you get angry. And you, you correct them. We don't behave this way. We don't do this. Right, And there's a moment in there when your sinful self takes over and you, <laughs> you, you want to beat that child. But no, I don't beat my children. For those of you online, don't, don't type that. There's, you want to, but you get angry and you get upset and there's a moment in which you can let anger take over or you can, you can respond the right way and correct your child. God 
turns and he's a good father. And he, he looks at them and he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. And through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So that's a terrifying line because it, it strikes to me that, oh no, we're all dead. But look at what he's going to do. And I want you, as I read this, I want you to just take, take note of the personal pronoun I. Just as we read, just I. Every time that that happens, hear it loud. I will, I will, I will. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. And I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you and I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations, then you remember. You gotta be kidding me. This is how God responds to vindicate himself? I mean, I'm expecting Noah's flood part two, this time with fire. Right? But what does he do? I will take you from the nations and I will gather you to myself. This is the image of a, of a bird gathering her chicks. I will gather you from the nations. I will take you. I will give you, I will give you abundance. I will clean you. I will, I will protect you. I will, I will redeem you. I will sanctify you. There's this moment here where I become completely broken because just like Israel, I profaned his name. I have not done what he's called me to do always, and I have not always lived up to what he has told me to do, and yet his response to me is not to punish me and cast me out, which is what I deserve, but instead to pick me up and take me to himself. And I don't know if you caught it, but this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Unless you are born of water and of spirit. Look at what he says. I will sprinkle you with clean water and I will put my spirit within you. Jesus was quoting Ezekiel. That's what Jesus does. He, he cleans you. He takes that which has been wicked has rejected him and has turned his back on him. He takes that and he redeems it and he lifts you up and he gives you a clean heart and he makes you new. He does it. All of it. And how can you not be broken over it? How can we not look at this passage and go, are you kidding me? So let's look just at what he does here. He when he takes you from the nations, he gathers you from the nations, he sets you apart. 
He takes the people who love him, who trust in him, he takes them and he sets them apart and he gives them a kingdom. He gives them a kingdom that's not, it's not their kingdom. He gives, he gives them a kingdom of heaven, a heavenly kingdom that is his kingdom that he has designed, that he makes, that he sustains. He gives that to you and to me. You are what we call resident aliens here. You are a citizen of the United States, don't get me wrong. Titus, you, you have to be a good citizen. That's commanded in scripture. Not what I'm saying. You don't belong here. You shouldn't expect to fit in. You shouldn't expect to look like the world. You don't, you, you, aren't, you aren't. You're in the world, not of it, as Paul says. You're, you're a resident alien here. You are visiting temporarily while your kingdom is beyond this world. So we are given a kingdom beyond this world. You are set apart. So just think about that for a minute. If you're set apart and your kingdom is beyond this world and can't be touched, G.K. Chesterton says it this way, if your castle is built in the clouds, there are no rules for architecture when your castle is built in the clouds. If our kingdom is heavenly, it's beyond this life, then what can man do to us? What mandates are too hard? What taxes are too much? Nothing. Nothing. There is nothing that the governing authorities of this world can do to you because this isn't your kingdom. Your kingdom's beyond here. This world should not be able to bog you down or destroy your soul. It shouldn't be able to crush you. Why? Because Jesus Christ lives in you, and he's of a different kingdom. And we're going there. Everything that happens here is just precursor for what's going to happen there. Oh, and study heaven for, for goodness sakes. Christians, read, think Read the Bible about heaven. Read the, the saints who have written about heaven. Read contemporary books about heaven. Read about our kingdom. And this world has nothing on it. What can this world do to you if he's going to take you from the nations and gather you and give you a land that is not of this one, that is, that is greater? What can the world do to you? Nothing. Nothing. It holds no sway over you. Mandates or no mandates, it doesn't matter. Taxation, great. I mean, now I'm from Texas. We don't like taxes. We don't like mandates. In Texas, you tell somebody what to do, and they put up a sign saying the opposite. This is, but none of this, none of this can defeat us. We are too too strong. Isn't this comforting? He will take you from the nation. Second, he will sprinkle clean water. Verse 25, I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will set within you. So he will clean you with Water. He will clean you off. The old man is gone. The new has come. Romans chapter 6. The old man is literally obliterated. That's what the word means when it says that the old man has died. It is obliterated. It is 
wiped out. It is rendered inoperable. That's, that's the idea. The old man is gone. You are free from sin and death. You are free from that which used to make you sin. You are free from that, that old nature. It's dead. When you read the New Testament, that nature is dead. Colossians chapter 3, the old has gone, the new has come, and is being renewed after the image of its creator. You are being made new every day. So the question that I always get when I say the old nature is dead, the new nature has come, and you live in the new nature, you're learning to live in the new nature, the question that always pops up is why do I still sin? So I just want to address that real quickly. This is a side note. If you if you lost track, don't worry, I'll get back to Ezekiel in just a second. So you've got this old nature, it is dead, the new nature has come, and you walk in the new nature, then the question is, why do I still sin? Well, if, if you didn't sin, then why does Colossians say that that new nature is being renewed daily? It's being renewed daily because you still sin. Second, why did Adam sin? He didn't have an old nature. At best, he had a neutral nature. At worst, he had a neutral nature. Neutral. He could choose one way or the other. He wasn't driven by a nature issue. He was driven by a volition issue. So my statement would be that when you sin, it's because you chose to do it. Own it. Because only in owning it are we going to have Ezekiel 36. I told you I'd get back to it. Only in owning it, we're going to have Ezekiel 36. So God cleanses you from all uncleanliness, as 1 John says, cleanses you from all unrighteousness, right? He, he cleanses you from it. He sanctifies you. He puts in a new heart. He changes your heart and makes you his. So this is something phenomenal about Christianity. We, we are the most unique portion of society. I, I, I just want to just for a moment, think about this is mind-boggling. God conforms you to the image of Christ, and in conforming you to the image of Christ, you become more and more like him, and you become more and more individual. Say it again. God conforms you to the image of Christ, and in becoming conformed to the image of Christ, you become more and more like him, and you become more and more individual. You become more and more who you were created to be. I would argue that no one can truly know themselves unless they know Christ. Because Christ is your creator, he is the one who designed you and made you. All other pretenses are false. All the self-help books that tell you who you are and how you behave and what, all those things, when they're divorced from a knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ, they do not tell you who, they, who you are, they give you a pattern to follow. But with Christ, but with Christ, you are told who you are, and you are made to be free and individual. You are made to grow and be unique. You are designed each individually to grow and blossom uniquely. Contrast that with the world. You see it all the time. The more we give over to sin and self and self-rule, the more we do that, the more we look like a big homogenous blob Everyone looks the same. Every TV show looks the same. Every story is the same. There's no creativity, no uniqueness, no beauty. It is all this big, massive blob that we insist is beautiful while we shake our fist at the one from whom beauty comes from. 
Yet, if you know Christ and you pour into him, you are free. You are suddenly free from the constraints of the world that tells you you have to be a certain way. And you are free to be uniquely who you are. Because Jesus Christ has rescued you. Dying on the cross for your sins, raising again to give you life. That's not just a saying to get you into heaven. That's not just a keyword. That's actually freedom for the soul that allows you to be who he designed you to be and allows you to blossom uniquely. And you have type A personalities and type C personalities. And the A personalities are mad that the C personalities didn't write this down in mathematical formula so that they could follow it step by step. And the C personalities are like, whoa, just let it go. And you've got all these things going on and you've got people who are anticipating life in every moment and they're high drama and they're up and down. And you've got Christians that are steady rock steady and you've got both of them in the kingdom indeed at the end of time what does revelation say but every tribe and tongue and nation praise the name of the lord our god think about that god does not require everybody learn the same language god does not require that everybody looks a certain way Indeed, he rejoices in tribes and tongues and nations, myriads upon myriads of them all over the place, all screaming and looking different, worshiping the Lord. And that can only happen when we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. That can only happen when Jesus Christ is at the forefront of who we are. Your uniqueness and your individuality And all of that stuff that our culture claims to embrace, that it doesn't embrace, it insists that everybody is the same, that all of that stuff that our culture claims to embrace but doesn't, Jesus embraces. And it's scary, and it's crazy, and it's big, and it's vast, but he is the highest good. He is the greatest love, and he's he's the one from life that life emanates from. Oh, what a joy. Every tribe and tongue and nation will come before him and praise his name, and we get to be a part of that. He takes us from the nations, takes his people from the nations, he sets them apart, he cleans them, he sanctifies them, and then he puts his spirit in them. Look at this, verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we started with this, oh no, we've broken the law of God. We have, we have profaned the name of God. Look at what he says. Not only am I going to clean, not only am I going to take you out from the nations, I'm going to clean you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm also going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with you. No greater picture of this is than is there than Jesus. God himself walking with us. No greater picture of, there, of this is there when Jesus weeps with Mary, when he walks with Peter and Peter's going, what are we going to have for lunch tomorrow? And Jesus is like, do you not understand yet the birds of the field don't require me to tell them what they're going to eat tomorrow? They just fly out there and they're well fed and they're taken care of. The flowers of the field are better arrayed than Solomon and you can't trust me for lunch tomorrow? Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's all that we need. And Jesus goes, are you serious? I've been walking with you for three years. You still don't understand that I am the Lord. John, John and James, oh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, they walk over a hill. You know, he is only recorded as saying two or three things in the Scripture. This is one of them. They're walking over the hill in Luke. 
They see the town of Samaria, and they look at Jesus and go, now do we get to call down fire on the Samaritans? Jesus just goes, You're, you got to be kidding me. You don't? How? Really? That's the John Elkins paraphrase version. <laughs> he, that's how I feel when I read that passage because I'm the John and James in the story. I'm the, I'm the fiery one that's like, let's burn them all. And, you know, Jesus goes, stop it. This is our God. He is loving and tender and kind. And he walks with you. He walks with you. Every pain you have felt, every anguish, every difficulty, every splinter, he knows what it feels like. Why? Because he chose to intertwine himself with us. Now consider that. God, whose feet sit on the earth as a footstool, chooses to walk with us in intimacy. That he would know every hair on your head, that he would know every bump on your skin, that he would, he would know every pain you feel, intimately know it and feel it and love you, and he would know everything that you see in the mirror. Do you know what I'm talking about when you look in the mirror and you see everything you are? And you can't help but wonder, how am I still breathing? And God says, it's because you're mine. Because you're mine. You're breathing because I love you and you're mine. How do He walks with you. There's that old song, right? It has, it's got very little biblical basis and it's probably not something that my reformed brothers would, would, uh, would want me to sing. But it's, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. The joy we share as we tarry there, none other hath ever known. You know the song. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. God walks with you, and he gets his spirit in you, and he walks with you. Oh, life is best when we walk with him. Life is fullest when we walk with him. Then verse 27, I shall put my, or sorry, verse 28. You shall dwell in the land that I will give your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Note that there's no question there. There's not a condition. There's no condition this time. In the Old Testament, there was always a condition. Way back in the book of the law, there was always a condition. There was, if you obey my covenant, then I will be your God, you will be my people. Not here not here. Ezekiel, whom Jesus quotes as being about him, this passage is about Jesus. This this whole thing is about Jesus rescuing his people. This passage here, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. He doesn't ask permission. He doesn't need your approval. He says, you're mine. Think about my kids again. There are times when I am disciplining my children and I tell them you've done something wrong and, and it's, I've got my low voice on, my angry daddy voice. You know, what, you know the voice, right? Boy, right, it's that one. My dad used to thump, right, thump you on the shoulder 
son. My dad could clear his voice from a mile away, and Jeff would hear it. I never did. I was always, woo But But this is, <clears throat> this is the, that's how this starts. And God then takes us and grabs our heads and holds our heads. Look at my face. Look at my face. Look at my face. And we're expecting damnation and hell to follow. And what follows is, I love you and you're mine. I love you and you're mine. I didn't make you this way. I made you different. You are beautiful and wonderful and fearfully made. And I, I have designed you to be unique. And I'm, I'm going to walk with you. And we're going to do this together. And you are going to be mine because you're mine. And you have no choice. It's, you are mine. I am taking you. You are mine. No matter how much you hit and throw a fit and, and how much you scorn my name, you are mine. You cannot be taken from my hand. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I know all those whom the Father has given me, and none will take them from my hand. None. John 10, all those who hear my voice come to me. Sorry, that's John 6. John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. They're mine. I don't know if you've ever uh, read any William Barclay, but he's got some great stories. And one of them is he was in Israel and he was walking with two shepherds. And there was a shepherd of a rather sizable shock, uh, rather sizable flock, and another shepherd that had a rather sizable flock. And the two shepherds stopped and spoke to each other for about an hour. And the sheep all mingled together. And when it was time to go, William Barclay noticed that the two shepherds separated. And one of them walked, uh, you know, a hundred or so yards away and the other one walked a hundred or so yards in the other direction and they turned and both of them made a weird noise different weird whistle and their sheep spread and went straight to them and William Barclay said oh that's what that passage means that's what that means my sheep hear my voice and they come to me and then they all come running This is the truth, that you are his, and you hear his voice. If you hear his voice today, you're his. Go to him. Run to him. He'll go get you if you don't. That's the beautiful thing. You will be his people, and he will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you, and I will make the fruit tree and and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So not only is he going to rescue, redeem, save, give you a land of your own, give you a kingdom of your own, he is also going to abundantly bless you. You don't believe this. Read any books about martyrs. They are more blessed than anyone who has tons of abundant material goods. And we can't explain it. You try to tell the world why people are blessed who are persecuted, who have nothing. For some reason, they have everything. Richard Vermbrand, in Tortured for Christ, actually explains that when he was tortured for Christ, he felt great, wonderful, amazing. 
He lived in abundance, and yes, it was painful, and yes, it was difficult, and yes, it was hard, but he was, he's counted as one of the happiest men to walk on the earth. Why? Because Ezekiel 36. He was cleansed. He was given a kingdom that's not of this world. This world can't do anything to you. You have a kingdom beyond here. He is blessed beyond all measure. Finally, we see, then you will remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquity and abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God, but let it be known that, and be ashamed and confounded at your ways, O house of Israel. So he says that when you see all these things, the right response is you will be ashamed. You will be confounded. That's the right response. It's the right response to look in the mirror and go, I don't know why you love me so much, but you do, and I'm grateful for it. It's the right response when you look at somebody else who's broken and go, hey, I'm broken too. It's the right response when you look at somebody else who's struggling to get things in life and you go, hey, listen, we all struggle. It's best when we do this together. It's the right response when you look at somebody and go, I'm no better but my God is awesome. And he can be yours too. It's the right response to be broken before the Lord and go, you redeemed me and I don't know why. <laughs> I do know why. He says so. He says, because I love you. That's it. That's the whole reason. That's it. If you're ever on Jeopardy, that's the answer. Why does God love his people? Because he does. He's God. That's it. That's the answer. He's God. <clears throat> Verse 33 through 36, thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause cities, just revel in this for a moment. Look at what he says. I will cause cities to be inhabited and waste places to be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land was desolate, has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. God does not stop with you and me. He's not done with the good news. The good news does not end at you. It doesn't end at you, it keeps going. All this stuff you see around you, pandemics, destroyed cities, countries in ruins, political turmoil everywhere. That's not unique to the United States, that's everywhere. Difficulty in local governments everywhere. What does God say? I will rebuild and replant and make fortified cities and I'm going to fix everything. The gospel doesn't stop just because you got your past to heaven. The gospel keeps moving. It keeps working. Now I want to be clear. This is a prophecy to the house of Israel. This will happen in literal Israel. It is also 
a truth for us because we're in the next passage. The nations come. That's us. God doesn't stop with you getting a key to heaven. God continues to work and change the world and rebuild and make things more beautiful. Your call on your life, O oh Christian, is to cultivate beauty in this world. When God put Adam in the garden, he said, cultivate the garden. That commission did not stop. Just because we scorned God and sinned against him does not mean that we do no longer have the obligation to make this world a better place. It is our responsibility. Indeed, it's repeated over and over in the Old Testament that you would look out for orphans and widows and broken and lame. And when they don't, Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel get scolded and, and told that he's going to take them all away and he's going to come and do it because they wouldn't. The lame you have not bound up, the broken you have not healed. Jesus comes and does that. And he then vindicates his name by doing it through you. He vindicates his name by doing it through me. He vindicates his name by showing his love, his goodness, and his life through you. This is how God vindicates his name. He doesn't vindicate his name by going to war. He vindicates his name by bringing peace and bringing peace through you. What can this world do to us? Nothing. But oh, what we can do for the world. Oh, what we can do for the world. How we can change our neighborhoods. How you can, how you can change your neighbor's life by a simple act of love. This is God's response to wickedness. Now look at verse 37, and we'll finish here. 37, 38. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel. So, this is a moment when uh, God says, I'm not done, right? This is when, you're, when you reprove a child, you start that, you grab that face. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look, look at me, look at me, look at me. You grab the face, you look at me, look at me. You are my son, my daughter, whatever. You're, you're my child. You are, you are designed to be different. You are, we live differently than the world. We are a different people. You, you go through all this stuff and you, you outline all this stuff and at the end, they're like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. You, you know what I'm saying? And then God, and then you say, I'm not done. That's what God did just then. That's verse 37, right? That's verse 33. Thus says the Lord, I'm not done. You're clean, sanctified, made new. I'm not done. It doesn't stop with you. I'm going to change the world. Verse 37, thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices. These are clean lambs that are spotless and blemishless. They are beautiful, clean lambs. I will, I will like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. That's us. We get in. We're part of the kingdom. We're part of the work. We fill the waste places with redeemed people. 
We fill the low places with redeemed people. We change everything because our God is that great. Why is it good that it is for his name? This is why it's good. This is why it's good that it's for his name because this is what he wants. He wants us gathered. He wants the world changed and made better and made whole. And we get to be a part of that. We get to do that. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Oh, I hope you understand why this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. That you are redeemed and rescued by God and made new. That you are completely changed and sanctified. And that, oh, he loves you. When he has every right to wipe you out, he loves you. We're going to sing together uh, before the throne of God above. And as we sing it, I want you to think about what that day is going to look like. When all the waste places are filled, you guys can come up if you want to sing. You, when all the waste places are filled and all the desolate cities have been rebuilt and the kingdom is literally here. And as, as we sing, if you need to grab somebody to pray with, this is your invitation time, I think. If you, as, if you need to grab somebody to pray with, you got some godly men in this audience, grab them, grab them and pray with them. But just think about the kingdom of heaven. And it says that heaven will come down from the sky and it will be revealed and, and we will sit. It, it will sit on the earth and there's these weird images of a cube city and all this stuff. But just imagine the throne of God where Jesus stands to welcome you with open arms. And then as we sing... Let's remember that that's now for us. It's now for us. Every pain and trouble and difficulty you have, it's now for us.